Welcome to Global Data Pod Research Wrap. I'm Bruce Kasman, and with me is Joe Lupton, and we're here to talk about a recently published research piece, which looks at spillovers uh, from growth shocks in the global economy. And of course, it's pretty clear where the motivation for this comes. Um, as we've gone through uh, the a year so far, uh, what we've been surprised by is consistently to the upside in the U.S., where U.S. growth is is now sitting on average in the first half of the year. I believe we're running about 2.4%, 2.2%, I think. Uh, we started the year probably about one. I don't remember, Joe, what, where, where we were. but uh, uh, And similarly, in the other direction, uh, we've had some pretty significant downgrades in, in Europe as the year has gone on. Uh, and in some ways, this is not just about what has happened, but also the sense that these divides may be a continued uh, impulse uh, with China as well being on the negative side as we think about uh, the second half of the year. Now, Joe, you've been doing a lot of work uh, for quite some time now thinking about spillovers. Um, so why don't I take it to you and just say, okay, we've had these upside surprises in the U.S. We think this regional divide with U.S. surprises uh, to the upside, European and China to the downside might persist. How do we incorporate that into a more careful assessment of what it may mean for the outlook for the world as a whole as we go through the next few quarters. Yeah, hey Bruce. So let's let's break that into two parts and two parts of the conversation really. And I'll, I'll, the first part is just what's the framework? How do we think about spillovers and what do we kind of estimate historically? And then we can dive into how do we apply this to the, the current backdrop that you just uh, laid out? So I'll, I'll take the first part, and then we can touch on the, the rest of the conversation on that second part. So, the, you know, in terms of spillovers, spillovers are obviously very, uh, very complicated, right? I mean, the thing people naturally jump to is to look at, uh, you know, trade numbers, right? And they think of exports and they look at trade shares and they say, well, this economy has got this trade share, so this has a bigger. And, you know, our view, your view, my view has always been that that's probably really too narrow of a lens to be thinking of spillovers, right? It, it goes beyond that. Obviously, consumer and business sentiment is important. Financial channels are probably the most important uh, element of this. Uh, and then it, it becomes even more complicated when there are offsets to the the drags of a negative shock in the sense that, you know, a negative growth shock can actually lower commodity prices, which hurts commodity producers, but helps commodity consumers. Uh, a, a negative shock uh, that does lead to financial tightening can actually lead to safe haven flows into places like the U.S. or your reserve currency countries where that actually eases financial conditions. And so adding all this up is is fairly complicated. I think the, the last thing we want to do in our job is uh, develop a generalized stochastic general equilibrium model. But that before you, before you say that. it's complicated, just say that our priors coming through this and obviously looking at history even before we do the analysis is that that does create an asymmetry because U.S. shocks do tend to have more significant financial market repercussions to the rest of the world. And as you said a minute ago, the U.S., also tends to have the the benefits of being the safe haven. So when you have negative That's shocks right. elsewhere, there's a cushion. One and of the being a commodity, things, commodity consumer as well, as I think adds to that. Yeah, although not that big a commodity. Not as much right? anymore. That's a fair yeah. point, Bruce. Yeah. But but at the same time, there are other parts of the world which kind of have you know cross currents from all of these things. So I think I think getting getting that story out as a 
conceptual frame and then kind of thinking about how we think about measuring the shocks, uh, which is, I think, guess is where you're going to go now, uh, I think is, is, is an important uh, uh, table setter. Yeah, so now, I mean, it, it, it actually, it's an unfortunate position to be in because I'll say well, the, the natural thing to do would be to just say, well, let's go look at the historical record, right? And, and, and keep things relatively simple, but uh, complex enough to account for all of the interactions of dynamics of, of, of growth across countries. So we do that in the context of this vector auto regression. I don't want people's eyes to water over here, but it, whatever. It's a, just a souped up model of allowing country feedbacks onto each other, uh, considering you know structural shocks in one country and how it propagates elsewhere. It allows for lags in the transmission. It does right. not account for all of the nuances that we just discussed. It just says, let's look at the historical average of that. And that's problematic for two reasons. One is because those, those nuances might matter. And it's one reason we either temper or amplify the, the type of betas, if you will, out of this analysis. Another important um, kind of unfortunate aspect is that things change over time, structure changes. And we're estimating this over the kind of pre-pandemic period uh, and maybe structure has changed. So that's, so the, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, let's, you see, you've said all the things that kind of, you know, downplay the, the analysis. I think there's a couple of cool things that we have to add to the analysis, particularly the way we can think about what is a surprise. So, you know, drawing on the tools we've built for somewhat different purposes, but they, they align themselves pretty nicely to, uh, to this analysis. So why don't you talk us through the toolbox of what we're looking at to look at surprises. I think that that is right, right. Let, let me just first say that oh, I can see you smiling. Uh, let me first say we haven't quite said what the VAR results are, the betas are. You're you're jumping to the second part, which is how do we think about what the actual shocks are, and we're going to feed those through the model. Let me just very simply say that what we found kind of confirms our prior that shocks in the U.S. have the biggest effect globally. Uh, they, they, uh, you know, you, the U.S. is not affected that much by either the Euro area or or, or China shocks, uh, whereas the Euro area and China are affected more so by U.S. shocks. Uh, there are important emerging market differences. Not surprisingly, Euro area has a big effect on the EMEA EM region. Not surprisingly, China has a big effect on emerging Asia. Although I will say, China has a big effect across the EM, even if not a big effect. On the DM. So if you have the basic priors out there, most people have on these shocks, it's that the US matters a lot and the Euro area and China don't matter as much, although they do for well, some kind of characters. The US and China, the US matters a lot for everybody. The Euro area matters a little, except for Europe, and, and China matters a lot for only for DM. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that, now you mentioned kind of now with those kind of. I call them betas in, in mind, you think of where we are now, what's the backdrop, what are the shocks? And you mentioned these other tools we have to kind of characterize the shocks. And, and, and you're right, Bruce, I think it's it's kind of neat how we, we've rolled out all these different tools of either our forecast revision indices, which are showing how we've revised our forecast. You could view that as a bit of a, a shock. We also have nowcast revision indexes, which are how the models are surprised. These are nowcasters, and we create these surprise indices off of them, how the models are surprised. They're all in this bucket of surprise indices. And I really encourage listeners to actually go explore these as surprise indices, and they're all online, data query, or on, on Bloomberg. You can get this data. Uh, lots of neat things to do there. But we use them in this context to say, like, hey, lo and behold, 
we look at our forecast revision index, which is how we revised our forecast over time, this, we revised up the U.S. a lot last week. I mean, almost two percentage points uh, for the year ahead outlook. Uh, the euro area, uh, on the other hand, we've been marking down over the last 13 weeks, probably about uh, you know a half a percentage point uh, on the year ahead outlook. And China, we've lowered a lot more, right? More like one and a half percentage points on the year ahead outlook over the last 13 weeks. We've marked that down. Those are very clear sense of a, a shock that we can feed through this system. The, uh, the Nowcast Revision Index, I won't go through the numbers, but they send a very similar message. Not surprisingly, our economists are responding to the data and the nowcasters they're seeing. So there, there's a there's a real consistency in terms of quantifying these shocks, and they all send the same message, which is U.S. up a lot, Europe and uh, down somewhat, and China down a bit more. Yeah, and and also spill over to everybody else. But that's um... yeah. I mean, that's in a sense the nature of what we're trying to do is probe the prod the team to start thinking about we've made these changes, particularly in the U.S. just last week. How do we want to think about whether this is going to spill over? Because I will say one other thing we find from the forecast revision index analysis, is, this is more navel gazing, but there is a lagged response. People tend to slowly respond to U.S. revision in the forecast. And that's not just navel gazing in and of itself. I do think there's an important element if you're a market trader out there, because momentum trades in the market is one of the most successful strategies. One reason that may be is because, because people only slowly change their forecasts over time. So uh, lots of interesting things that you can explore uh, uh, through this angle. Yeah. So let's, let's get to a, so, so first of all, just let's say it's, it's comforting that these different metrics come up with broadly similar yeah. results. So that it gives some weight to the strength of that, uh, that message. But let's also sort of think about this in terms of how it tells us something about the size of the shocks, right? So, you know, one of the issues is who matters more? The other is where's the shock bigger? And I, I, we could actually kind of get into a, uh, a little messy conversation about that as we did this morning. But why don't you give me your take on terms of looking at what these different measures are telling us about where the shocks to the global uh, economy have been uh, in relative size over the course of the last three, six months? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, obviously the U.S. stands out. It was something we just made in the last couple of weeks, although I think from yours and my perspective, that was probably long in coming. Um, and and it was just a you could see actually the nowcasters led those revisions, right? They were getting surprised as, as you know, early in the second quarter. Um, and so you had a big surprise in the U.S., uh, I, I would, I mean, if I was just very, make it very clean, I would say the sum of the two negative shocks in Euro area and China is about equal to the positive shock in the U.S. Although I will say you made a good point. We're saying this morning, because we've talked about this to the listeners <laughs> offline, but Bruce, I think you made a good point. You can, you could make it again now, but I, uh, about the, well, time. I guess the point uh, is that the China forecast revisions have been, you know, first very sharply up and then very right. sharply down. So I would smooth those relative to the U.S. and Euro area revisions, which have been more broadly uh, consistent in the same in the same direction. So, but even if we even if we take a view that the um, the shocks are broadly offsetting on the on the growth side, um, obviously spillovers are are larger in aggregate from the U.S. Uh, but also one of the things you said up front is the way to think about this is not to think about, 
hey, shocks transmit purely through trade, but that they transmit through financial markets. So if we're, we're watching a world in which we're seeing positive U.S. shocks and negative shocks elsewhere, the financial market response becomes a, an important uh, courtroom in some sense to adjudicate which of these shocks are more yeah. important. And I don't think that I think that the, the jury is is pretty much done here, at least it's in terms clear. of the near term part. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think you're, that's 100 percent right. And the last uh, kind of section of this um, this piece really drives that point home. Right. I mean, uh, you know, you've just you know what I mean, choose whatever financial indicator you want. There's obviously the, the, the one that gets a lot of attention is the Office of Financial Research at the U.S. Treasury has a global financial stress index, which is not only comprised of a lot of uh, kind of components, uh, the most important of which being credit funding and volatility metrics uh, to, to kind of assess global financial stress, uh, uh, but also they have regional decomposition. And But just quickly, both uh, that financial stress globally indicator has, um, has really come off quite sharply and it's actually below normal, right? There, there is really no stress. There was a lot of stress around SVB and the banking sector stress, but it's come off a lot. And then by region, and this is a really important point, I think you were, you were pressing this uh, with me, is that you know, by region, yes, the, the U.S. Has, has been an important part of that. But the EM in particular, if you just go to like the MB spread data that we have or the EMFX total return index, both of these are not only aren't they showing signs of stress, they're, they're actually moving in very constructive, positive ways. And if you felt like, you know, yeah, the U.S. is doing, you know, X, but China is doing Y and China matters a lot for the EM, I'm really worried about that. You're not seeing that in the EM stress indicators. You're seeing nothing but kind of, you know, green lights here. So, um, you know, the whole, I think you bottom line all of this, and I think there's a sense that um, we're just not really seeing much uh, evidence of contagion yet. And we probably lean a little bit more in the direction of we're in this kind of cyclical sweet spot, which is something you and I have been kind of pushing for a good, uh, you know, six weeks now. So then we kind of take this and we then kind of get into the issue of how do we want to interpret it from the outlook point of view. I think there's there's one relatively straightforward part of this, and then there's a much more complicated one is to the sense that we do kind of scale these things in the way we just described and look at financial conditions as taking a, a reasonably decent, um, you know, slice of transmission, then you'd say that the outlook for much of the world looks pretty good here. Um, there's positive news in the U.S. and and that should, combine with the financial conditions dynamic, be a important spillover to particularly the EM uh, economies outside of of China. But then we get to the more complicated issue of, well, if we do believe there is actually a negative shock that's hitting the euro area or China, how wide will the regional divide be here? How much will these particular regions under underperform? Um, you know, I, I want to, there's not an, an obvious answer to that in the, in the context of the modeling. I think this gets more to our judgment of how to think about the nature of shocks versus spillovers. Um, but I want to kind of come at it by saying, I think one of the features that we've identified in business cycles, looking back over time is that the sectoral divides don't tend to, to last that, that long, but the regional divides can linger. So, you know, my bias has been that we could be in a world where the world is doing okay overall, and you could have particularly a Western European underperformance, 
of of decent size. Um, I mean, I want to take get your take on it because I think you're a little bit more uh, positive about possible spillovers here. So uh, to the euro area. So why don't you why don't you take a little bit of that other side on that one? Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be right to be talking about a research note on divergences without you and I having some divergence. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, but I, I have to say, I think you make a, a compelling argument there. I, I, but there is still a part of me that feels like the weakness that we've seen in Europe and China has been exacerbated by the, the weakness in, in global industry. And particularly if you look at Germany, which is you had a, a you know, that's kind of part and parcel with the slowdown in the, the global manufacturing sector. Um, I think if we believe the manufacturing sector is going to get a bounce here and I won't reopen that. But listeners who are longtime listeners will know we have a pretty strong view on that. Um, hasn't happened yet, but it's a prospective view. We think it's coming. Um, if that happens, um, you know, I think Europe and China will be kind of all else equal kind of disproportionate beneficiaries of that um, by the nature of those economies. And, and therefore, I think uh, while it may not close the divergence, the regional divergence as much as the sectoral divergence, I think the direction will be in the, the constructive uh, in a constructive way. OK, well, that's that is a, a bit more optimistic than I'm kind of seeing it right now. Um, but again, we'll be, we'll be watching this. And I think the basic point to make is that it does feel like there is multiple points of motion here. Uh, the U.S. almost always has been the dominant one for the global economy. And it feels right to take that uh, for what we're seeing at the moment. Um, but I think you should understand there is that sense of disappointment in Europe, particularly, and, and probably in China as well. And it's going to be, in some ways, uh, I think watching both sides of that equation, that's going to tell the tale, tell the tale, as you're saying, for our manufacturing story where we're looking for uh, recovery in the next few months, uh, as well as the broader uh, outcomes we see. And so I, I think can I add one, one more point here is that if you add into this, the, the hints we're seeing of this kind of Goldilocks scenario with this morning's inflation report, if I told you that you were also going to start to get maybe a, a bit earlier uh, start to Fed easing cycle, not driven by a recession, but driven by, uh, you know, this, this Goldilocks soft landing. I think that will also do wonders through financial channels uh, that will also support kind of a, a European China backdrop. Yeah, I would 100% agree with you if we get Fed easing here and it's not because we're in recession. That's a that's a big plus. That's for, a global right? shock. That's a, that's that's a much a, bigger positive global shock, right? I don't have that in my my forecast right. at this point, not for the next six months, but, you know, let's see where we go here on the inflation news and, and on other things. So I'm glad that Joe, you left us to end on a, on a bright note. That's not often the way we do that, these things. Uh, but thank you very much everyone for listening. Hopefully we could continue talking about our research and the global data pod research wrap. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan research reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2023 JP Morgan Chase and Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on August 10, 2023.